Hey, did you catch the ultimate fighting match last week? You know, the one where they gouged each other's eyes out? Um, <laughs> no, you probably didn't because that doesn't happen today. But it did happen in 19th century America. What did it mean to be a man in the era of the Civil War? To be a man, to be an American man, was to be independent, and this was displayed by control over your own body up to and including risking getting your eyes gouged out in a brawl. But self-control meant different things for different people. What did it mean for Southern as opposed to Northern men, for example? Or working class versus middle class? Or white and black? We're going to find out in today's Short Shorts episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Hey folks, this is a revised release. For a few brief shining moments, this was a showcase featuring an episode from Dig a History podcast. They had agreed to the release, but their situation changed and we had to pull the episode. Oh well, things happen. So this is now my own episode inspired by theirs, drawing on their research, but presented in a more condensed form. If you want, you can still check out their original episode entitled Patriarchs, Brawlers, and Gentlemen, on Dig a History Podcast. All right, time for today's Short Shorts. Short, 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 If you ask someone from the United States what it means to be American, you'll likely get a response something like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, fighting for freedom where all men are created equal, anyone could succeed if you work hard enough, and so on. While that may not be exactly accurate, especially for many minority situations in the United States, it is nevertheless at the heart of the American mythos, and it is also at the heart of the American sense of manhood. To be a man in America is to be the lone cowboy, independent, self-sufficient, and tough. But the roots of that go back even further than the cowboy. In fact, it was already well in swing during the Civil War era, with roots going even further back to the American Revolution. See, the revolution had called into question previous ideals of manhood. Previously, men were bound up in a colonial social order where duty to king and country was paramount. But the revolution went against that. The revolutionary American man flew in the face of king and country, espousing a different kind of duty. A duty to conscience and to defiance of authority where necessary in order to create a so-called land of the free with liberty and justice for all. That's how they saw themselves anyway. Now this divergence of manhood picked up steam in the decades after the revolution and by the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865, 
American men had made themselves into something new. Now, the primary marker of masculinity was not submission to authority, but defiance of authority, independence, and self-sufficiency. So how did they show this? How did you as an American male in the mid-1800s show that you were no obsequious Brit, but a true American male? Well, one way was by doing stupidly dangerous things, like jumping off waterfalls. <laughs> You've no doubt seen depictions, maybe in cartoons, of people going over falls in a barrel, right? Well, people actually did that. In barrels or not, they took the plunge, which was horribly risky. Now, why in the Hamilton would people do this? And what does it say about masculinity other than that men could be ridiculous risk-takers? Although, believe it or not, the first person to go over Niagara Falls and survive was a woman, one Annie Edson Taylor, at the age of 63, no less. Anyway, the reason why men did this is this. Falls jumping was one example of a broader range of risky behaviors that showed that no one owns you but you. What you did with your body was your own choice. Now, this was in direct contrast to the royal subject, who belonged to king and country, as well as to the plantation slave, who belonged to the master, and to the woman, who still at this point pretty much belonged to her husband or her male relatives. The American male, on the other hand, was free to do with himself as he willed, apparently no matter how risky, nor even how dumb. But why the obsession with what you do with your body specifically? I mean, why couldn't it be how you spent your wealth, or what you did with your time, or pretty much anything but risking bodily injury? Well, with the increasing pace of the Industrial Revolution and the changes that that brought to the market and the economy, many men found themselves less and less in control of their external lives. For example, cobblers, who a generation before would have crafted an entire shoe, might find themselves reduced to merely punching out just the sole of the shoe over and over again in a factory. And instead of enjoying the profits of an esteemed craftsman, they took home the meager wages of an unskilled laborer. Thus, the new industrial economy was seizing from American men the ability to control their own fates, the very thing on which they prided themselves so dearly. But the one thing that you could always control, no matter what, so long as you were male and free, was your body. And thus, doing the stupidest, riskiest thing that you could with your body, something a king or a master or a boss or a husband would never order you to do, became an expression of free, independent manhood. Now this cannot be seen more clearly than in a sport that evolved in the South called backwoods brawling, otherwise known as gouging. <laughs> That is what it was called, and yes, men literally gouged each other's eyes out. It had even fewer rules than Ultimate Fighting does today. In fact, the only rule in gouging was no weapons. Other than that, it was no holds barred. And the goal was not just to take down your opponent, 
but to inflict lasting permanent damage, hence gouging. And no less an American icon than Davy Crockett took part in this brutal sport. According to one story, Crockett recalled, I kept my thumb in his eye and was just going to give it a little twist and bring the peeper out like taking up a gooseberry in a spoon. Yikes. Now, <laughs> now this gouging, it, it was not exactly an organized sport with advertised matches and all that. It wasn't that kind of thing. Rather, this was a mostly rural, working-class thing where you would arrange a time and a place out in the woods somewhere and spectators who heard about it might come and watch. But the point was, you're going out into the backwoods to prove something. And if you survived, then you had proved your manhood forevermore. And if you were the victor, you might even be something of a local hero. But even for losers, you can imagine how the loss of an eye, visible to everyone, strange as it may sound, might be worn as a mark of pride. Everyone could see that you had braved that fear. Now, not everybody in the South was into poking each other's eyes out. The landed gentry were far more into boxing, which involved the much more civilized object of merely beating the living daylights out of your opponent till they passed out. The upper crust preferred either that or dueling, which had been popular all across America during revolutionary times, but by the Civil War era had become distinctly Southern. And it is quite important to note that there were men who could not duel, namely black slaves. They were explicitly denied this right. In contrast, they were expected to endure physical punishment without fighting back. They were not in control of their bodies. Their bodies belonged to their masters. And that is what made this kind of masculine display so effective, particularly in the South, where most of the plantations were. Yet the North was not innocent of it either. Falls jumping phenomenon mentioned earlier was popular in the North. Also popular among lower class men in the North was hard drinking and getting into brawls, which, although a little less gougy than that of their southern cousins, was violent nonetheless. Middle and upper class men in the North, however, eschewed violence. They went a completely different way. Not because they were pacifist or something, no, no but because doing so, eschewing violence, could effectively distinguish them from their lower class and southern fellows. Rather than demonstrate absolute control over their bodies through physical danger, middle and upper class northerners did so through self-restraint. These men buttoned up their waistcoats, starched their turnover collars, and tied tight their ascot ties exercising perfect control over their impulses and showing themselves gentlemen who could never be aroused to such base passions. The influence of religious revivals in the North during the Second Great Awakening that happened during this period, well, that gave this form of manhood a little bit of life, but it also fit in quite neatly with the kind of white-collar, desk-job, high-status aspirations of many Northern men. In fact, the class consciousness of this was such that men in the North actually avoided appearing muscular. When else do you hear about that 
in history. You don't want to be buff. Why? Because only those who made their living by manual labor were buff. The true gentleman was to be agile, sure, but not ripped. Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been seen as the epitome of boorishness in the North at this time. So that is what manhood was like across the United States at the time that the Civil War broke out. For Southerners and lower-class Northerners, it was focused on dangerous displays of bodily control, whereas higher-class Northerners exercised conspicuous self-restraint. But what they all had in common was the assertion that the free adult male was in control of themselves. So, what happened then when war broke out? What happened when a whole nation of such lone wolves suddenly had to fight in a pack. Well, there was a lot of tension. For example, Union regiments often saw dissent between enlisted men and officers. The officers, often drawn from upper-class elites, were disgusted by the lower-class enlisted men under their command. They saw them as unruly and brutish boars, the very opposite of their own ideal of manly self-restraint. Meanwhile, the enlisted men saw their officers as tyrants, disrespecting their independence. And in the case of the 20th Massachusetts Regiment, whose officers were drawn from the finest Brahmin families, Harvard graduates all, the lowly soldiers once even demanded their newest second lieutenant be dismissed from command, and they complained that this officer was trying to, quote, destroy their manhood, and claimed that they had been, quote, subjected to a tyranny worse than African slavery. Now, the sheer hubris of comparing themselves to slaves at a time when there were actual real slaves, well, it's just breathtaking, but it does illustrate well the attitude of these soldiers. When disciplined, they felt that their independence and therefore their manhood was undermined. They were being emasculated. And for these soldiers, what emasculation brought to mind was African slavery. Now, speaking of people of African descent, there were blacks who served in the war too, mainly in the North. It wasn't until very late in the war that the Confederacy finally allowed blacks in. Too late to make much of a difference. But in the North, they did, hesitantly, but they did, as the 1989 film Glory dramatized so effectively. And these black soldiers sought to prove wrong the perception that whites had that blacks could not be real men. It's the light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. It's the light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Because their perception of them was as slaves, and the slave was the perfect opposite of independence, the perfect opposite of their own conception of what a man was. So blacks were seen as very nearly incapable of true manhood, both in the South, where they were enslaved, and in the North, where they were free, but still very much subject to racist views. However, black men thought if they could enlist and fight and show themselves to be the equals of whites, well, then they might just have a chance of being accepted as men 
quote-unquote created equal. And this was very similar, in fact, to the pattern seen in a previous episode of ours among Jews in 19th century Germany. Military masculinity had become the norm across the Western world, with the citizen-soldier as the preeminent route to manhood. And so, for Jews in Germany, as well as blacks in America, enlistment promised inclusion. And some 186,000 men of African descent joined the Union Army, with another 20,000 in the Navy. And they were not always allowed to see action. Many were used instead for just manual labor. But when they did see battle, they fought with redoubled bravery and redoubled sacrifice. In fact, by one estimate, black troops suffered deaths at more than double the rate of other soldiers. Now, no doubt this was due to a number of different factors, including poor access to supplies, and a readiness by generals to use them as fodder. But it may also reflect a willingness on the part of the black soldiers to die in battle because they had more to prove. The movie Glory dramatizes the true story of the all-black 54th Regiment, which requested the honor of leading the assault on Fort Wagner, knowing that it was a suicide mission. And this act which I think any of us today can appreciate for its courage, was even more poignant in an era when the true mark of manhood was seen as the privilege to determine one's own fate. Now, whether that came in the form of being dashed to bits at the bottom of a waterfall, or risking another man gouging your eye out, or buttoning up proper as a restrained gentleman, the mark of manhood was self-control. White men of the Civil War era proved their independence and thus their manhood in contrast to blacks, and yet I can think of no greater example of such masculinity, nor any better way to close out this episode than the sacrifice of these brave black men. Hey folks, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. Thank you to Dig a History Podcast for the majority of research that went into this episode. It's too bad it didn't work out to just showcase their excellent episode, but as I said, things happen, and you can always check it out on their feed. Anyway, if you like what we're doing here on our feed, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or by pledging on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a backwoods brawler gouging an eye out of some poor fool or as a soldier valiantly charging toward freedom, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, folks, I'm working on some episodes on gender among Native Americans, but I'm not quite sure what the schedule will look like. It's a sensitive subject that I don't want to rush, and today's rewrite did put me back considerably, so... We will see what happens, but in the meantime, everybody stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.